0: Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the U.S. Hey everyone! Today we're going to talk about genome assembly, and this time we're going to focus on short read assembly. And just to start off, uh, Nabil, do you want to start off with the history?
1: All right. So let's just explain the the problem. I guess if if nobody ever, if nobody knows what the problem with the problem with, of why you assemble genomes in the first place. So your essential issue is when you sequence DNA, you never get back. Well, de- well, not right, not quite yet. You don't get back the complete chromosome in one go. You have to do little tiny fragments of it over and over again, and hopefully from the oversaturation, you can then reconstruct the original sequence. And we call that de novo genome assembly. So there's a bunch of different ways you can do it. Uh, And I think this is a little before my time, but the earliest ones uh, were sort of just greedy assemblers. So things like CAP.
2: Oh, I remember that. CAP3. That's kind of where you print them out and you overlap them by hand, is that it? I think, well, yeah, I think that probably was the earliest <laughs> earliest genome assembler was, yeah, printing them out. <laughs> but that was uh, Sanger sequencing.
0: I used to do Cap 3 also, and it was like, it would automatically generate it, but then you definitely had to look at it by eye.
1: So those were the earliest, that was one of the earliest ones, along with FRAP and the Tiger Assembler. Uh, for And this, yeah, this was mainly for doing capillary sequencing. And so like, assembly. human genome days? Uh, I think maybe it was a bit prior, or it was around that time, because for human genome they had Solera by that point, yeah. Which we now know as Canoe. Yeah, it was the as Canu. So I I remember when I I think when I started Frap was still the go-to viewer, even though you didn't necessarily use the assembly tool, we still use that interface to have a look at your assemblies and see if. If what the assembler done made sense you could see the consensus sequence and then all the underlying reads and that was a rite of passage being able to install and run that and being being able knowing how to use it uh, from memory the software still isn't freely available and you have to, you well back then you had to email the authors to get a copy
2: and would they post it out on a tape or something? <laughs>
1: no, they would email it to you. But it was more or less the same thing. It was like mail order software.
0: <laughs> it was in, it was in a tar dot, or it wasn't in a tar.gz. It was just like in a dot .z file. I still have that email around somewhere. Just I think case. everyone
1: kept everyone kept that email around because it took all, because they didn't give it to you immediately. So you know, if you were in a hurry, you could spend like a day waiting for a reply. So every so I so my copy was passed handed down to me from a postdoc who got it from their <laughs> supervisor and so on. It's like this um, for for the FAP software. But I never really got it to work. <laughs> you had to hard code uh, folder directories. It wanted a oh very gosh. specific folder structure. And if you didn't feed it that it got very upset with you. Um, but still a very useful piece of software and that's just what we had to, to work with but after that i think what i'm more used to are things like overlap consensus uh, assemblers so these are things that you'd be using for 454 the 4541 was nubler and there were other ones like minimus as well and then and i think we've talked a lot about nubler before on the podcast in my ace format so i don't think we need to re- re- revisit any of that just have a look at some earlier um, episodes and then and then then I think at that point so historically what had happened at just that same time was you had more you had higher throughput sequencing from Illumina started to come, or selection those days that started to come out and you also had this uh, from solid as well um, and what was happening there was you had higher and higher levels of coverage, and that was computationally more and more difficult to do with the approaches doing overlap consensus. And so then people started using uh, de Bruijn graphs to. How'd you pronounce that? De Bruijn. De Bruijn? De Bruijn? I mean, that was probably one of the hardest questions that you could ask a bioinformatician about like, short read assembly was how to pronounce de Bruijn? <laughs> I think de Bruijn. Like de Bruijn? No.
0: I have no idea. I always said De Bruin, but I know that I'm messing up words. I already have a bad history on this podcast.
1: How do you how do you say the, the football team, the Bruins? The Browns? It's, it's brown. It's just brown. I don't know.
0: I actually yeah, have no idea. We're <laughs> going to get roasted over this one. We're then. going to get into so much trouble.
2: Oh, no. So that's um, basically when computer scientists joined a party and mathematicians to try and... No, well, that,
1: that already existed. I mean, the BRIN was long gone by that point when we started using it. It was just a, yeah, but it was just an older, uh, it was a representation of the assembly graph in a more efficient way that handled the higher density sequencing data. And the first, from my memory, the first software that really, really codified it was Euler from Pavel Pezner. Hopefully, I said that right. Yes. And and he went on, and his group went on to write spades and so on. So he's been in the field doing stuff for, ever since. But that was the big one. Was Euler? I remember was a little bit tricky to use, and then uh, but that was instrumental, I think, for the development of velvet. And then velvet is the one that everybody knows and everyone loves. Is
0: that uh, Danny Zerbino? Yeah,
1: Zerbino. Yeah, for that one. Um,
0: yeah I used to use that one a lot like I was amazed by that in grad school but like I guess everyone's moved on from velvet but like that's the one that just like super impressed me like so much and I still go back to it sometimes and maybe I don't know like it's awesome.
2: I I did like half a million assemblies with a uh, velvet so it's quite useful and it works quite well. The only gotcha, I remember, was um, the default camera size, maximum camera size, was something very small, like 31, which, you know, when, when reads got longer, it was no longer appropriate. Yeah, and I think it didn't really handle longer read lengths, even if you went
1: outside the defaults. It was very fine-tuned to a specific uh, set of parameters.
2: 37 bases. Yeah,
1: and and for me, the thing that Velvet, at the time, struggled a lot with was When you had a lot of variation in your uh, insert library. If your insert library was too far, like, you know, sometimes you had some really lousy library preps and you had like maybe 200, 300, 400 bases for your insert, and then that velvet would just chuck a fit
2: for that. It really wanted very tight uh, redistributions. What really helped was a velvet optimizer from uh, Torsten Seaman and Simon Gladman over in Melbourne. And I found that really, really useful because it would just churn through all the different parameters and then give you a nice assembly at the end.
0: Actually, that's kind of uh, how I came across Torsten's work, was Velvet Optimizer. Um, I mean, it's just so far-reaching. Like That was just uh, my first encounter of many.
2: He's never published it. I I have seen a manuscript, or certainly a one-page abstract, that he intends to publish, but no, he's never gotten around to that. And I think he might have missed the boat at this point.
1: I'm not sure how much... Of it was Simon, and how much of it was Torsten at the time? Bit of both, I think. Uh, But yeah, definitely used Velvet Optimizer a lot. I even remember that they wrote a GUI. I'm not sure if they did it or someone in their group did it, but someone wrote a GUI around the Velvet Optimizer as well, just to make it even more accessible. But that definitely brought uh, short read assembly
2: to just made it available to a lot of people. I really liked it because um, it would give you a reasonable assembly all the time, and it worked without fail. It just would not crash, compared to, say, AMOS, where, you know, I found it would take one month to assemble a single bacteria. How big was this bacterial genome?
1: Uh, E. coli. E. coli, so five million characters in one month. Yeah, yeah, it
2: was quite slow.
0: So um, you said a couple interesting things, that um, you did half a million assemblies, and you also had at least one assembly that took you a month to run. Was that part of a larger experiment?
2: Yeah, I wrote a little paper on an assembly improvement pipeline that I had in Sanger. And that would basically do velvet assembly. And then afterwards, it would you know do a bit of scaffolding and cleaning up. And for that comparison, we had to compare it to AMOS. And that's how I know that an assembly with one core could take a month. And we did half a million because it was an automated pipeline. So, as samples are coming off with the sequencers, if it's bacteria, it would just get assembled regardless with, uh, with velvet. And that changed later on to, to spades. But everything by default was velvet for many years.
1: It was definitely embedded in people's workflow. I think the one thing that we liked in my old, in, you know, when I was doing my PhD for velvet was if the, the, the contigs were almost never wrong. It was very conservative with the, with the contigs that it generated. And you could take those to the bank that this that those genes were synthetic if they were on the same contig. And other assemblers didn't necessarily have that. Some, sometimes they might have edge cases where they sort of fell apart. And I remember that maybe some of the earlier versions of spades were a little aggressive. And that put people, I, re, I do remember that put people off initially from jumping over to spades. It wasn't quite clear how it was doing it and at what point would it make these sort of funny little mistakes. But those are no longer there. I think those those are gone now in more recent versions. But that was like at the initial release of Spades that was there. So people stuck with Velvet for a very long time because it was, you could just trust it. And, and also, without, yeah.
2: Spades at the very beginning was very mem- memory intensive compared to Velvet. And so there was this push just to keep it on Velvet for a while because Spades just hadn't caught up. But then Spades over the years has been continuously improved. And you can see the value of investing over a very long period of time in a piece of software, you know, because now Spades is just phenomenal.
1: Yeah, I mean, Spades, Spades. I mean, it's, a, it's an apples and oranges problem because Spades is obviously doing a bit more than Velvet was. Velvet was just doing the assembly and then Spades is doing... The uh, read correction as part of it, and then the post processing where it maps the reads back and then tries to check for errors for scaffolding errors, and that was the stage that was very very memory hungry at the beginning, uh, which you know as and yeah as you say it's much better optimized. But that was like the chunk and Velvet didn't do any of it. Velvet was a, an assembler that just generated that. For anyone listening at home who. <laughs> is interested how these actually work i remember reading um the velvet paper is a very good place to start i think it still is a very good place to start with the brun assembly and then uh zabino's actual dissertation is really good at explaining what a bubble is what a spur is why why do cameras have to be odd numbers um this sort of stuff like all of these funny things that um if if you've ever wondered how the what actually makes these things tick, it's it's a really good good really good read.
2: So choosing camera is a big problem. How do you do it? Uh
1: I think after listening to Torsten talk about Shovel and all of his trick, he just said read, read length like minus one. <laughs> as long as it's odd.
0: One thing that um that gets to me sometimes when I do these assemblers is that sometimes they produce different results um, just randomly, like especially space. I'm not sure Velvet does that.
1: Uh, Velvet, okay, so for memory, it it's because of multi-threading. Velvet, so not all assemblers, most assemblers are not deterministic. Uh, Velvet, uh, so yeah, usually if you run it on one core for Velvet, you would get the same result over and over again, but if you ran it in the multi-thread, you wouldn't. And I think that also applies to spades. That applies to most of them. It's got to do with the fact that when they start the assembly, they'll obviously begin with different seeded cameras and so on, and so they can't necessarily guarantee the same result. But Velvet One Core, you will always get the same result, I think. At least back 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 when I was using it.
0: <laughs> huh. That um, kind of says to me, like as a reviewer, like if somebody does multi-threading, I might want to ask them to do like a single thread one time or something in a peer review. Maybe like a third of fewer comment,
1: yeah, like and so like I mean, we haven't, I mean, I want to hear more about the one month genome <laughs> yeah, so I think why uh, why was that one month? Is that on one thread to prove a point?:
2: <laughs> It was to provide a benchmark, so as far as I can remember, Amos was the best of the time, and then it it assembles with different assemblers. I might have this totally wrong now. it was a long time ago. We would assemble with lots of different assemblers and then kind of choose the best.
1: Oh, like tea, coffee, but assembler version, like this
2: one. Yeah, optimize. Okay. Um, but these days, you know, we have a lot more assemblers. Not many good ones come along, but skizo I think, has been like the one that really shook the industry. What do you think, Lee?
0: Yeah, I love Skiza. and I was kind of uh, hinting into Skeezer just now because uh, one of Skeezer's strengths is that it's deterministic, and it doesn't matter how many threads you give it or which computer run it on, if you have the same input, it'll give you the same output assembly uh, with with the same you know essential parameters like camera length and stuff. Um, and I was fortunate enough to be uh um, a partner with NCBI, we got to try it a little bit earlier. And um, I think that we just like really, really liked it um, as soon as we saw it. And we are very fortunate to have worked with um, one of the authors, Risha. So big shout out to you. Thank you very much for Skeezer, Risha.
2: And haven't they assembled everything basically in RefSeq? I think they've done oh. everything in the SRA, right?
1: Yeah. So NCBI has gone back and done everything.
0: Well, they've they've Sorry, gone back Seiza. to SRA and um, especially the genomes in the pathogen detection pipeline. They've gone and started assembling everything. I believe everything in Listeria is done. So if you see something from like CDC or FDA that's sequenced in SRA, it's now sequenced in Skiza. You just download it straight from RefSeq. <laughs> it's pretty amazing, and they're and they're not stopping there. They're they're really trying to assemble everything now.
1: I mean that saves a lot of computational time. I know it's based trying to keep on top of it. The assembly is, is definitely the most computationally intensive part of it. I mean once you have that as as a as a launching point for a lot of other analyses, those are those are trivial to go back and like do genotyping or do whatever you want to do with it. or Even calling SNPs and so on. Um so I think that's gonna be a really great resource if that's available for everybody and easy to just fetch just curl all of it and be able to use it plug it straight into our pipelines yeah girl. but yeah what what how did you feel about some of the 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 how did it compare in terms of quality because i know that the performance wise it's probably 80 percent fast or you know it's it's it's, it's very fast It's very, very fast.
0: It'll assemble a bacterial genome in, sometimes like in two minutes. Um, I would, I give it a range of like two to 10 minutes per genome, and it's still fast that way. Um, And on the other hand, I would give spades a range of like 30 to 90 minutes probably. I don't know how everyone else feels about that, but it's, it's about that magnitude.
1: That's an actual like for like comparison, same number of threads, same amount of memory for that, or is it just more... What you've seen, uh, in in sort of anecdotally and day to day use.
0: That's my day to day personal experience. Okay. Um. And I. And you asked also um about the QC or, or kind of how we view it. I,
1: the I quality, think like how yeah, how well does it does it does Skeezer misassemble? Does because all of them have like little quirks. I mean, what what's the what's the dirty secret for this for Skiza?
0: I think that internally we kind of view um spades versus Skiza is kind of a trade-off where spades will give you the most contiguous thing possible it'll try to in other words try to give you the most nucleotides in a row without breaking as possible but Skiza, as soon as it sees um any kind of ambiguity or or branching or bubbles or whatever like it'll break the contig right away so um and to emphasize that point, one time we were doing a comparison of spades versus skiza, and we saw zero ambiguous bases in the skiza assemblies versus you know, however many in the spades assemblies. And it's because skiza, as soon as it sees an ambiguity, it's like, okay, I'm going to stop right here because I don't want to make a miscall. So the trade off is contiguity versus skiza is going to give you the most accurate base calls as possible.
2: So, when talking about this, we really have to talk about shovel, spades, and skiza in one go because spades came along default settings were pretty poor so torson uh, invented Chival, which you know did things like it would overlap reads before putting into the assembler it would turn off re-correction and do it itself and you know it would do things slightly differently and then you know you'd skeezer come along with an ultra conservative assembler and then wasn't there an embarrassing blog post put out and so the the spades guys were like, okay, we gotta up our game. If you do these different parameters, everything will be magically work, and we're we are as good as Skeezer. Um And then they brought in an isolate flag as well to turn on all the the extra settings to get really good bacterial assemblies, so that they wouldn't be worse than uh, than Skiza. which is kind of cool.
0: Yeah, it was kind of a satisfying um, blog post that the Spades team did too, just to just distill all the parameters did and everything um, if we find that blog post again I guess we should put that in the show notes um, and they just they specified exactly what parameters to do for a single bacterial isolate I, f- I almost forgot to say that thank you for bringing that up
1: I think that's really good sign that we have a robust community we have a robust scientific process and we have a good community that are able to have these new ideas and then have this backwards and forwards and, I mean, I think the turnaround time for that was fairly quick. The bloggers came out. They
2: were fairly quick with responding to it. Yeah, although this was known generally for years. Um, that's why Shovel existed. But it's nice that there there is feedback. And I suppose if you're developing an assembler and you're trying to make generic, you don't want to say, oh, well, here, you know, here's a special bacterial assembler because that might limit uh, the citations you get and whatnot. But uh, fair play to them.
0: Oh, and um, I should also say, since the blog post, I have not done a really good comparison, so I don't know how how great it was since then. So I can't give a, a yes or no since then. I don't know if you guys have done any experiments since then.
1: No, and I think, and I think we, yeah, I think that's a good point, Lee. We should say like this sort of stuff is is really quick, and um, this this is always a moving target if we're talking about it, and what we're saying might be obsolete by the time someone is listening to it. So, you know, when in doubt, please consult your physician or bioinformatician if problems persist.
2: <laughs> so this isn't the first time there's been kind of comparisons with uh, different assemblers. There was the Assemblathon uh, papers, one and two. And uh, I I seem to recall that the it was set up by a group and then they found their own assembler was the best. But uh, I might be wrong on that. I think it was Mazurka.
0: I'm remembering something like that, but it's been a very long time.
1: Was that a yeah? Se- yeah was that a Semithon
2: one or two? I think the Assemblathon one. They they had some something strange. It was like jump libraries, and uh, not all assemblers are set up to use those.
0: Oh yeah, it was the jump libraries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's. I, I'm still having a hard time remembering it, but it was it was that thing because when I went back to redo it myself, like to understand. Uh, comparing genome assemblies, I was like, jump libraries? And, like, I had to investigate what the heck that was, and we never had any jump libraries ourselves.
2: No, it's quite a specialized thing. We should really get
1: Aaron or someone on the show.
2: Oh, was A5, was that his?
1: A5 was his. That was... But that was that was just a tool for the metrics, wasn't
0: it? Oh, a is an assembler also. I never used it.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah. And then there's some other ones, like... Uh, Sean Jackman was involved in Abyss. That was used for a while, just a fair while ago, though. And uh, do you remember Soap De Novo as well?
1: I remember Soap De Novo. That 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 was an interesting one, because I think for eukaryotes, it consistently was quite good. And then for bacteria, it was sometimes the best, and sometimes not the other ones would pip it to the post. Uh, but that was always up there on the list, uh, Soap De Novo.
0: Oh, and um, I I almost forgot this one too. But did you guys ever use Mira?
1: No, I no. Um, Mitch the easy fig is a big fan of Mira. I think for memory, he used to use it, but I never used it.
0: That was like a huge. Um, it was uh, like randomly seeded. Like you'd get a random uh, assembly every single time, and that's when that that's when the randomness like really um, came into. Uh, my point of view, I was just like, how, how, how is this happening? <laughs> but that one actually would take all day to run if you were very careful on your options. We used to use Mira 3 with like, um, like more 4.5.4 stuff. And, um, and some other people have gone back and used it on some long reads stuff. I think I know, I know we're not talking too much about long reads, but, but Mira 3 was a, was a, I think a big contender before, at least on my, on my side, we, started looking back at, at Canoe later on, but, but Muir 3 was a, a big contender. Thanks for a great discussion. I feel like I le- learned a lot about short read assemblers and even some I've never even used before. We're all out of time, but have a lot more discussion on future episodes, and so please stay tuned for future episodes on our discussions on genome assembly. Thank you all so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and like us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group and edited by Nick Waters. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrant Institute.